0: Hey lovelies, before we get started, there are two things I'd like to let you know. Firstly, I have decided to open up a small amount of ad space right here on the Be Impactful podcast. This is something that I've been asked about in the past and always said no, it just didn't feel right. But over the past few months, I've come to realize that what we have here in our little quarter of the internet is really special. And I wanna use that magic to help other small businesses as we continue to deal with the effects of a global pandemic. I'll be selecting a small number of brands to work with and will only share products or services that I have personally tried and can vouch for. Preference will be given to women-owned small businesses and all are welcome to apply. If you believe we are a great fit for each other and you'd like more information, please send an email to rivky at impactfashionnyc.com. That's R-I-V-K-Y at impactfashionnyc.com and I'll send over all the details. Secondly, I'd like to let you know that this week's episode deals with sexual abuse and what we can do to keep our family safe. It is not at all graphic, and I believe that it is a must-listen for anyone with kids or anyone planning to have kids someday. I can say as someone who is not a parent that my eyes were really opened by the way Rahul framed the concepts in our conversation. Nevertheless, you may not want young children listening to this episode, and you may find it difficult to listen if you have experienced any kind of sexual abuse. If you find yourself in the latter category, I want to take this opportunity now to say that I might not know you, but I believe you, and I am 100% positive that whatever happened was not your fault. There is help for you out there, and you deserve to find it. For everyone else, enjoy the show. From Impact Fashion, it's Be Impactful, a show about the women making a difference in their own corners of the world. I'm Rick and on today's show, I talk with a former sex crimes prosecutor about her career at the Bronx DA's office. She shares why she felt compelled to work with victims of sexual abuse, how that work led her to abuse prevention, and why she wants us to approach sexual abuse like crossing the street. Every now and then, I rec- record an episode that compels me to push my entire schedule and publish it immediately. This conversation with Rahul Bayer is one of those times. Let's face it, we would all rather pretend that sexual abuse doesn't happen, but we know that's simply not the case. So we owe it to ourselves and our families to be properly informed on this issue and learn the skills to communicate it clearly
1: what i was like as a little kid okay so first of all it's wonderful to be here um and what i can say is i was probably just as precocious as i as i am now except that nobody uses that word to describe an adult um i was always one of those kids that was probably getting into a little bit of trouble, you know, asked a lot of questions, may have been removed from classes time and time again for kind of asking the extra question or really inquiring. I was a pretty inquisitive kid, Um, but other than that, you know, I kind of looked like Annie with red curls and
0: like, you know, grew up in the 80s. And, And had the hair to match, it sounds like. Definitely had the hair to match, absolutely. That's, that's fantastic. So I um, I got to know you through my friend, uh, Dr. Maslow Lerner, who basically put it out into the world that anyone who has a podcast needs to talk to you um, because <laughs> of the work that you're doing. And I have to say, she, of course, was 100% right. And uh, I, I want to get to what you're doing at the at the Bayar Group in a minute. Um, but your early career was as an assistant district attorney working in in the sex crimes unit. How yeah. how did that happen? What made you even decide you wanted to be a lawyer?
1: Sure. So, um I I really didn't want to be a lawyer, to be quite honest. I wasn't interested in going to law school. I was the person that probably watched Law and Order and said to myself, that's never going to be me. I'm not actually interested in the pressure or the craziness of it. Um, And I spent most of undergrad thinking that I was going to do a PhD in psychology. I was really interested in trauma. I was really interested in how people get through it. I was really interested in, in people in general and in connecting in some way. Um, I did my whole undergrad as if I was going to do a PhD and I still remember applying to PhD programs and my applications were sitting on my dining room table and I looked around and I said to myself, I don't think I want to do this. So in this, kind of crisis of, I thought this is what I was going to do, and in the end, I I wasn't really sure that was the right path for me. Um, I ended up having some lengthy conversations um, with some wonderful mentors, including my parents and other people. and when I was describing what it was that I wanted to do, where I wanted to kind of be able to give a voice to people who couldn't speak up for themselves, when I was describing what, it, what, what I felt that my path would be in terms of you know, the notion of seeking something for other people or making the world a little bit better or adding value in some way, it was actually my dad that turned to me and said, you know, it almost sounds like law school would be the right place for you. And I was like, no way and I thought about it really for a matter of probably a few days um, that felt like weeks and like on a whim I ended up taking the LSATs applying to law school um, moving I was living in Canada at the time coming back to the States and just literally went to law school and I highly do not recommend that right (laughs) nobody should ever just go to law school on a whim that's not the way it works Um, but it happened to be the right decision for me and I knew pretty quickly that in terms of what I was looking for in law school, I was looking to make a difference in a meaningful way. I'd always been able to um, connect to kids. I was always really interested in the criminal mind. I was always interested in trauma. That was just something that always fascinated me. And so I was lucky enough to meet while I was in law school a former assistant district attorney from the Bronx DA's office who ended up being my mock trial coach. And her guidance and the, the sh- what she shared with me throughout the course of my working intensely on on this um, law school winning team was enough to kind of guide me to a place where I knew I wanted to be at a prosecutor's office, and it was the best way for me to add value. The notion of being able to seek justice, and I graduated during a recession where no one was hiring, um, and it was really kind of scary at the time. And I knew that I wanted to go to a prosecutor's office and I was pulled towards the Bronx. And I can't tell you exactly why, other than the fact that from everyone I had spoken to, it was so clear that the way that they train you, the way that they essentially kind of throw you in, you know, the experience starts before you walk in the door. And that's what I wanted. Um, and that's exactly what happened. I was lucky enough to be one of the few people that was hired for a class during the recession. Um, I was able to start right after I you know, took the bar which was in and of itself an unenjoyable experience um, and, uh, and and was lucky enough to, to join a class of phenomenal people, um, interviewed to initially go into the domestic violence office because in the Bronx, you couldn't go directly to sex crimes. You had to have some other training first. Um, started in the domestic violence office, did that for about a year and was able to interview and then get into child abuse and sex crimes where I was for the remainder of my career there.
0: So... First off, I love that you just decided to go to law school. That's fantastic. Yeah, no. Yeah, Nobody should do that. Don't do that. Okay. <laughs> no, I, I hear you. Don't do that. But that's fantastic. Um, when you were you always pulled towards, you know, working in child sexual sex, sexual abuse cases. Or was it was it something that you that you knew, you know, you, you speak about this this wanting to, you know, do better in the world. Was that always where you felt like this is where I can make the biggest impact?
1: I think that once I knew that I wanted to go to the DA's office, the notion of of a child who didn't have the ability or, or might not have the ability to speak up for themselves or who might have gone through something so traumatic that the notion of talking to someone or having someone ask questions, for me... I felt pulled to that. I really felt this notion of, what does it mean to give a voice to someone who can't speak? And what does it mean to give a voice in a way where you are seeking justice? And the truth is that it wasn't just that I was pulled to child sexual abuse cases, I was pulled to sex crimes in general, mostly because it's the only type of crime that happens where people question the validity of the victim's statement. Nobody ever questions what happens if you were robbed on the street, right? No one questions you if there is a home invasion into your home and everything was taken and you were terrified. Nobody asks you, well, what were you wearing when you were in your home, right? Or nobody says to you, what do you mean they took your cell phone and your wallet? Like, did you tell them that they could? Nobody questions a victim in other types of crimes. But these crimes, there's something about it where people initially don't want to believe that it happened and therefore turn to the person who experienced probably the worst trauma in their life and question whether they're telling the truth or not. And to me, that's mind boggling. And I think that the notion of being able to seek justice for those victims or for those survivors of those types of crimes really pulled me in.
0: Why do you think there's that suspicion? You're 100% right. You're. It's you know When you make the comparison to a robbery, You're right. Nobody says, did you say he could take your phone? Of course I didn't. Why do you think there is that suspicion when it comes to sex crimes?
1: I think people really don't understand it. I think that it's hard for people to wrap their head around the idea that someone who might look so regular and so kind and so normal on the outside, who might just look like you or me, or be someone that you have had many conversations with, could do something so bad to someone else. And when it comes to child sexual abuse, you know, I think the current CDC statistics are that somewhere around 90 or 91% of child sexual abuse is happening with someone, is happening by someone that the kid or the family knows, right? This notion of the scary stranger or that creepy person or the person that you see in that kind of introductory law, nor- law and order episode where you're like, ooh, that's a scary person, stay away from that person. Right, most of the time when it comes to child sexual abuse, it's not that scary stranger. It's someone that is known, it's someone that's good with kids, it's someone that flies under the radar. And I think there's a there's a real cognitive dissonance that people have. This idea that someone that you might have had a conversation with, or that you may have interacted with, that you may have shared a meal with, or worshipped with, or you know, had coffee with could do something like this. And because There's this idea of, but we didn't see it. I think people from a, just from an emotional place have a hard time reconciling that. And so therefore it's easier to believe that A, it didn't happen, or B, it didn't happen the way it was shared, right? So I think that, I think a part of it is also, especially with child sexual abuse, is that it's so awful and it's so, like horrible. It's so gross that for anyone to think that someone could do that to their kid or to another kid, it's impossible. It's impossible to reconcile. Like how could that happen?
0: Right. Yeah. And, and it it almost makes sense that as humans, we like to, you're right. We want to believe that something like this couldn't have happened when you were, when you were at, um, at the district attorney's office, what did your, what did your day-to-day look like? Oh my gosh,
1: my day-to-day looked like a different day every single day. Um, You know, it's when I started, you know, because there were so few of us in the class that I was in and caseloads were really high, uh, day-to-day be anything right it could be staffing a court part where you are actually in the courtroom all day Um, you essentially manage other people's cases where they give you the status update of what's happening on that case and there are usually two or three ada's that are just going through the docket you know along with the defense attorneys and giving status updates it could mean a trial um, of which I could have gotten the case just a few days earlier um, and find out that I'm being sent to trial and you know, you've, you've barely interviewed a victim, you've barely you know, wrapped your head around certain things. Because when you start, you're dealing with misdemeanor crimes, which are crimes that in New York, you would spend less than a year, someone could spend less than a year in jail for. So it's a, it's a different level of crimes. And then as you go on in the office and you start handling felony cases, a day could have looked like indicting a case on a grand jury, trying a case at trial, picking a jury, meeting with your victim, meeting with the special victims detective, you know, going over to a child advocacy center to either interview or to watch an interview of a child victim. You know, it could have involved, um, you know, case conferences and conversations. And the truth is that one of the things that I think really grounded all of us is that as a division and as a unit, especially in sex crimes, there was a real camaraderie amongst the people there when I was there. And some of you know my fellow ADAs turned into some of my closest friends because we were all going through crazy days. Um, you know, And the joke was sometimes you'd have what we call a desk day, which is the day where you're meant to catch up on everything, which. Never actually turned into a desk day. Um, and, and there were also things like beeper duty, where you would get assigned, you know, beeper duty, whether it was you know, a night beeper or whether it was a, you know, a period of time, you know, there were times when you were staffing um, the place where when someone gets arrested um, and the police actually arrest them within 24 hours they need to be arraigned and so a document has to be written up that actually charges them with what the crime is and so because that has to be done so quickly we would also have night shifts in that room where we would be meeting with victims or meeting with detectives weekend shifts holiday shifts um and so you know crime doesn't stop just because the day ends and so you know every day looked different
0: how did you protect yourself from burnout because it's, you're not only, aside from the fact that you just have an incredibly busy schedule because it's a busy job, you're dealing with emotionally exhausting things day in and day out. You're meeting, you know, you're, if you're meeting with, you know, even if you're only meeting with one victim a week, which I'm sure you're meeting with more, that's so much trauma to hold.
1: I think that um, the people that go through the office, some burn out really quickly Um, And some find different ways of coping. You know, I was really blessed to have gone to law school and actually I had my first um, child at the end of my first year of law school. Um, So for me, my law school experience, my experience at the DA's office, having young, young kids, right, having a spouse at home, I think that there was the ability to really come home and leave the office at the office because I had to parent right? And I had to function as a parent to to young kids. Um, And I think that on some level, that was really a blessing for me. I think that on another level, you know, there were moments of burnout. I think in my career, there were about three cases that will never leave me, that I remember just leaving the office and coming home and needing to just like quite literally take a shower and and feeling like I wanted to burn my clothing, right? Even though I didn't, um, because I was on a DA salary, but like, you know, feeling like I wanted to do that and feeling like I just needed to completely compartmentalize or I was going to go crazy. The fact that I that I prosecuted hundreds and hundreds of cases, but there are three of them that have stuck with me in a way that, that impact actually everything I do to some people may sound astounding, but you know, when you do this as a day job, you learn how to cope, you learn how to laugh with your colleagues, right? You learn how to take pleasure in small things like, you know, going to get ice cream from a convenience store or, you know, being able to say, you know, tomorrow I have a quieter day and I'm gonna be able to enjoy it. I think that one thing I should have done was probably exercise more because I think that would have helped. Um, and I have learned that as I have gone on in this work that, that is a, that's a wonderful release. But, you know, I also think that that for me, I constantly felt even in the really bad days that I was doing something that was worthy and that ability to wake up in the morning and know that no matter how hard it was, no matter what kind of crime scene footage I had to watch, no matter what conversation I had to have with an adult or a child, no matter what a grand jury presentation was going to be like, the bottom line was there was something that I was doing that was making a difference in this particular person's life. It was not a macro thing, it was a micro thing. And that's what got me through every single day and the truth is, I, I had been at the DA's office and my husband was offered an opportunity, a leadership opportunity across the country. And I ended up resigning from the office, um, not, not so happy about it. And I, we went out to Seattle. We lived there for, for almost two years. And when we knew we were coming back, I called my bureau chief at the DA's office and I said, I, I just want to come back. Um, and I did. Came back for a few years after that. Because there's something about the day-to-day and the work that we do that as long as you don't get lost in it, um, you're able to take stock at the end of the day.
0: Can I ask what it was about those three cases? Not, not graphic details. Um, I mean, if Yeah, you, you don't want to know. <laughs> <I've>, <laughs> right? I'm going to assume, exactly. I'm going to assume that we don't need those. But what was it about those three cases that gave them that lasting impact on you?
1: I think for me they were child cases um, where the abuse had happened within their family um, in a way that had, um, for some of them, um, had clearly impacted the kids in a way that I I felt that there was a good chance that they were never going to be okay. Um, and for me, you know, people always ask me once I left the DA's office and started doing work, kind of preventative work or doing investigations in terms of historical abuse what the difference was and I think that at the DA's office the one thing was that there was always this hope that when you met someone at the worst moment of their life right and and my face would then be associated with the worst moment of their life and they would never want to talk to me again or never want to see me again because that's the reality of being prosecutor that does this work But I would know that when a case was over, that we had put in place support, whether that meant, you know, crime victims advocates or therapy or, you know, allowed for other people to come in to help that child or to help that adult in some meaningful way. And I think that there were a few cases where I felt that no matter what we did, the trauma was so severe that I was worried that they would never be okay. And that's a really scary thing to have to comprehend, that no matter what we do, we may not be able to fix. Or help a child, but we still have to seek justice for them. And what does justice look like when you have a child that, that isn't verbal or can't speak, right? Or when there's you know footage of what happened to them and you potentially have to watch that or show that to you know a defense attorney in order to, to figure out a plea for the case, right? There's, I think that that, that piece of it was really hard to wrap my head around.
0: Yeah, that that sounds awful on every level. <laughs> yes. um, what Was that part of what led you to form the Bayer Group? So after
1: I left the DA's office, I actually went to a company called TNM Protection Resources um, and worked in our sexual misconduct consulting and investigations division for almost, let's say for four and a half, almost five years. Um, and I had the opportunity of working with some just phenomenal former prosecutors um, in this division where we did a lot of consulting on policies and procedures and on how to make your school or camp or organization or workplace safer. Um, We also did a lot of investigations. That was really the biggest piece of what we did, these kind of long-term historical abuse investigations or investigations when there was, you know, boundary-crossing behavior in a place and there was a concern about grooming or there was a concern about harassment, something that wouldn't involve law enforcement. Um, But that was concerning for the police at hand. And a big piece of what I did, and I think a big piece of what I brought to the table was this notion of doing trainings um, of kind of public speaking and working to prevent, as I like to say, the very crimes that we spent so many years prosecuting. Um, And I had the unique opportunity to really expand that and be able to travel all over the country um, and speak to so many different people about preventing these crimes that I think I really found a way to kind of bridge my passion of having been a prosecutor and seeking justice and then working to really be able to prevent the very crimes that I spent so many years prosecuting. Um, And that really spoke to me. And so, you know, after a lot of soul searching, um, you know, Know, decided to kind of go off on my own and start the Bayer Group and essentially work to help places be proactive when it comes to preventing these very issues. So whether it's issues of sexual misconduct and sexual harassment that people think may never happen in their workplace or may never happen in their school or, or camp, or The bottom line is it happens. It happens amongst kids, it happens amongst adults, or whether it's about understanding child abuse and understanding sexual abuse and physical abuse and emotional abuse and neglect and what it means to have preventative measures in place, how to deal with um, training everybody from your, let's say, faculty and staff to your students on how to be safe. You know, I do a lot of trainings for kids on what consent is, on what it means to have a good understanding of abuse prevention on how to stay safe online, right? How to understand these really scary words like sextortion or, you know, online sexual solicitation or things that nobody really wants to talk about, but are really big issues, especially now, nine months into a global pandemic where everybody's online and everybody's doing things.
0: What is sextortion? I've never heard that term. Sure. it's I I would say it's probably a coined
1: relatively new term over the course of the past year. But essentially what it is, is it's a sexual crime where somebody is being extorted for something that they either said or sent to someone else online. So a a classic example of it would be, you know, somebody pretends to be, you know, an 11-year-old kid, and befriends your 11-year-old kid because they're gaming together or because they're on social media together or something of that sort. And there are different kind of methods, right? There's not just one method, but imagine this adult pretending to be an 11-year-old, you know, starting a friendship. Right with your child who thinks that this is another kid, and maybe um, they have some friends in common because this adult who's pretending to be an 11-year-old has sent out, you know, feelers to lots of kids in that school or lots of kids in that camp. And so your savvy 11-year-old or 12-year-old or 13-year-old is like, oh, we have some mutual friends, so this is a safe person for me to talk to, and they start talking. And you know, that kid or that adult who's pretending to be that kid might say something like you know, I'm really curious about something sexual and might send what what they are pretending to be is a naked or semi-naked picture of themselves but is really a picture of someone else or someone that they've found online and they send it to, let's say, your child and your child is, you know... No matter what age they are, by the way, whether they're 16, whether they're 11, et cetera, is like, oh my gosh, this is crazy, right? And then they continue talking, and that person, that adult who's pretending to be, you know, a kid, turns to your kid and says, you know, now that I sent you something, I feel really vulnerable, or I feel like you could use it against me, and I don't want you to, and and I shouldn't have sent it. So maybe you could send me a picture back, and that way we could be even, and we know that neither of us will ever will ever do anything, you know, to each other. And because they think they're friends, or because they think that you know, this other kid, I say that with air quotes, but it's a podcast, so you can't see that, right? So this other kid, you know, made themselves vulnerable. Vulnerable First, they'll send a naked picture or they'll send a semi-naked picture or they'll send a video of something. And then all of a sudden, that person who was masquerading as an 11, 12, 13, 14, 15-year-old um, then extorts them and basically says, if you don't send me more, if you don't do this, if you don't agree to this, I'm going to send this to your parents I'm gonna send it to your principal. I'm gonna send it to your entire school, your entire you know, church or synagogue. I'm gonna send it to your grandparents. And that person, that adult, that predator may actually know things about that child because we share a lot on social media. Um, And parents share a lot on social media. And so, you know, people have become really savvy in terms of how they act as a predator online and how it is that they might manipulate your child to do something. And so this idea of of sextortion is this extortion um, of a kid in a sexual way or of somebody else in a sexual way. And what's scary about it is that when parents, um, you know, parents aren't necessarily gonna know that this is happening. And it's overwhelming for a child who's going through it, especially because they think they caused it, or they think that they're the reason why this happened and that it's their fault and that they're gonna be in trouble. Um, And so a lot of the training that I do when it comes to kids especially from, let's say, fifth grade and above, has to do with being able to stay safe online and thinking through what it means to stay safe online. Because you could tell a seventh grader what to do, but it's not going to work, right? You have to be able to bring them in and let them hear the real anecdotes and real stories of situations where things may have gone wrong. Um, And a lot of times, like for example, I'll go into a school and I'll do a training for the whole middle school and I'll also do a parent night for the parents. And that allows for the parents to not only hear what their kids learned that day or are going to learn the next day, but actually gives them an opportunity to think through the types of questions and conversations that they can have with their kid. So a lot of times a school will bring me in and we'll do this you know, combination, right? We speak with the faculty and staff, we speak with the parents, and then we work with the kids. And the goal really is safety. But the secondary goal is communication about really hard issues.
0: Do you find that people are receptive to having you discuss these topics with their children? Are you finding that there are certain types of schools or in certain communities where, because I mean, I think that this is so incredibly important to be discussed, but I can also understand why someone might not want you talking about revenge porn with a 10-year-old. So, How, how, How has the response been to the kind of trainings that you're talking about?
1: Um, So I think that, first of all, the response has been really, from my perspective, pretty amazing. Um, It's been pretty wonderful. I think that fear, the fear of parents or of schools is usually before they have an opportunity to have a conversation. Um, And I think that one of the most important pieces is transparency. I'm very specific in the language that I use. um, And I'm very specific in the way that I speak to kids. And a sixth grader is not the same as an 11th grader. And by the way, a sixth grader is not the same as an eighth grader. And so what really becomes important, let's say in a school setting, is that the school partners in a way where they give parents an opportunity to kind of get their fear out, right, or the fact that they're scared out, and then have the parents come and have this conversation with me that's really not fear-based. And my approach to everything, whether it's training faculty and staff or or camp staff or working with a corporate workplace is this can't be about fear. This has to be about taking really scary things but making them tangible for you, the non-sex crimes parent, right, who is really nervous and really scared about talking about these things, about having to face these things. How can I help you make this conversation easier. And so, you know, I have to say, probably parents, a lot of parents walk in and they're (laughs) probably really scared or really worried about what it's going to be. And I can guarantee you at a parent night, there's going to be laughter, there's going to be smiling, and there's also going to be real thought put into why it is we're talking about this stuff. And, you know, typically after a parent night, I'll get a lot of questions. And some of those questions are, Okay, but, you know, what do we do with this? Or what do we do with that? Or what do we do with this? And and what I always say is, look, there's no really good roadmap, specific roadmap, because not everybody is the same, but it starts with a conversation. It starts with you as the adult taking a deep breath and realizing that you know how scary this is because you're a grown-up, because you've read the news, because you've seen the articles, because you know what the bad could be, but you're also the parent. And just like you taught your kid that they have to swim safely and take lessons and not jump into a pool if there's no lifeguard there and not jump into an ocean when there's a riptide, we teach our kids safety about so many different things. We don't turn to them and say, listen, if you don't take swimming lessons, if you jump into a pool without a lifeguard, like you're going to drown. And let me describe to you what drowning feels like. And let me give you these graphic, vivid details, right? We don't say that to our kids. We don't say to our kids, if you don't look both ways before you cross the street, if you don't listen, if you don't look, you're going to get smacked by a truck and you're going to be flat on the ground and your insides are going to come out and you're not going to be able to live. But we don't say that. Instead, we turn to our two-year-olds when we're walking somewhere, no matter when it is. And we say, hey, you got to look both ways. Do you hear anything? Do you see anything? No. Well, that means it's safe to cross the street. Why do we do this? Because if a car is coming, it's really unsafe to cross because you could get hurt. We talk to our kids about serious things all the time. But we do it in a way that's not intimidating for us and we take the approach of our kids need to understand the seriousness of it we do it with kids who have allergies and can go into anaphylactic shock we do it with kids that you know suffer from an illness and need to take medication we do it with fire safety we take these really scary things and we make them palatable for us to have conversations with our kids abuse is no different our our fear and that intimidation factor And the fact that parents have a hard time talking to their kids about this is because as adults, many, many people haven't figured out a way to navigate the simpler way of having a conversation with their child from a very early age and just make it part of your normal routine. And so part of what I think happens in a lot of these parent nights is really giving parents the language and the permission to treat this just as seriously but to do it in a way that's not scary. Like, for example, you use the term revenge porn. I don't really use that, right? Because I think there's a, a there's, there's a fear attached to those words that may be different than what it is that I'm trying to share. So, you know, I, I would say that it's still probably intimidating to walk out of a session that talks about a lot of this stuff. Um, but I think it makes it a lot more tangible.
0: Yeah. But I can, you know, when you, it's, you have a very good way of explaining things in ways that, you know, taking big ideas and breaking them out into smaller pieces. You're right, we don't tell our kids exactly what it feels like to get hit by a car, but we do tell them to look both ways. Right. If, if you had to give me like a, a golden rule here, if, if I could only tell my kids one thing about staying safe online or about staying safe in general, what would that be? If I'm, let's say I've never talked about this with my kids before, I'm a little nervous, I just want them to be okay, and I don't know what to do. What would you tell me?
1: Online or in person? Let's do both. Okay, online. So the first thing that I would say, if it was just one thing, if I had to pick one, let's say, family value slash rule, depending on what you use, is the combination of there can be no secrets, but I also want you to know that if you think you made a mistake, if you think you did something wrong, if you know you did something wrong, I will never, ever be angry at you for coming to speak with me about it, because sometimes we don't realize we're in unsafe situations or unhealthy situations until we realize something's really wrong. And then it can be really scary to talk to your parent who usually punishes you for things that you do that are wrong. And I want you to know that A, there are no secrets about what happens online. But even more than that, if there's something you did keep a secret, if there's something you did that was wrong, we're not going to punish you, and we're not going to be angry at you, we want you to come to us. That also means, by the way, that you actually have to follow through on that. It means that when your kid comes to you and says something and you're like, you did what? You know, that you have to be able to take a step back and realize they're going to test the waters to see if you really mean it. Because when a kid comes to you and says, I screwed up, or I did something, or I sent a picture, Or I sent a video, and now something bad is happening. Your first instinct is going to be like, "You did what?" And you have to curb that because your kid is still a victim, right? Or your kid may have been put in a situation where they were manipulated, or they were coerced, or something happened that was not that was not their fault, right? They're still a kid. I think when it comes to things that happen not online, um, my variation of the one rule that I think every single family should Adhere to and pick is something that's really easy to describe and really easy to explain, which is my no secrets rule. Um, when I say it's my no secrets rule, I didn't make this up. I'm not taking credit for no secrets. Um, I say it because, you know, my kids will laugh about the fact that from a very early age, one of the first things that I taught them was we do not keep secrets because no healthy grown up needs you to keep a secret for you. And secrets, and I'm saying this to you as a fellow adult. Secrets are what people who groom children use to silence them. It's what they use to manipulate them, and it's what they use to ensure that no one is going to find out. And so if at a very early age you teach your kids, we do not keep secrets from our parents. And any grown-up who tells you or anyone who... Anyone, anyone who tells you that you keep a secret or asks you to keep a secret, you tell them, I'm not allowed to keep secrets. And so what that means is when grandma comes by and says, Oh, I have a secret gift for you, your kid starts to say, Oh, we don't keep secrets, right? Or when the teacher says, Oh, we're going to do something secret for Mother's Day, your kid says we don't keep secrets. And I always talk about teaching your kids the difference between a secret and a surprise. A surprise has an ending and a secret does not. And so what that allows for is, I'm going to make a surprise party for your dad. It's going to be on Sunday. Let's not tell him because we want it to be a surprise. He's going to find out. What it avoids is a situation where you have someone that's grooming your child or a predator that's actually, you know, working on the steps of grooming your child and then this secret is kind of kept for forever where this child doesn't tell you about the special gifts that they received or the special candy that they got or the special time that they're being given or the special phone that they were given by this person who's really trying to cultivate this. And I say this in air quotes, relationship of trust, right? So that when they do something bad to this child, the child thinks that maybe, maybe it wasn't so bad, right? Or maybe I Cause this, or maybe I'm supposed to do this because this is a trusted adult who's had me keep the secret for them. So I would say that that's kind of my, my main number one rule. And if you think about it, it's actually really easy. It doesn't involve any words that make people uncomfortable. It doesn't involve any body parts right it doesn't involve explaining sexual abuse or predatory behavior or grooming or anything like that and it's something that you can start saying to your kids when they're 1 years old i mean i the amount of stories that i share in the trainings that i do about multiple times that my kids have told teachers who have used the word secrets that they're going to go to jail because their mom puts people like that in jail like i i've got a a ton
0: of stories for all of my kids and i share them all the time that is Fantastic! Uh, and it's just- that's fan- it's that's so fantastic because I think what's also so great about that method is that, like you said, you don't you're not required to explain anything, but also it covers all instances. Yeah. I am sure that there is some sicko out there who has thought of a new way to abuse children that we have not thought of yet, and when you have this blanket no secrets rule, you don't have to say you know don't let anyone touch you where a bathing suit covers you obviously don't, but you don't, you don't have to be those, you don't have to give those specific parameters because if it doesn't fall under those parameters, it still falls under this no secrets rule. And also it would seem to me, and again, I'm a, I I'm making this up. I'm, I'm speculating, but it seems to me that if a predator would speak to a child and start the grooming process, and then the child responds with, we don't keep secrets. It seems to me like that person would just move on to someone else would say, you know, this is not, this is not where I'm going to have the result that I want.
1: Yeah. And I think that one of the most important things also for parents to realize is that we give our kids tools because we hope that they'll use them. But at the end of the day, it's our responsibility to keep our kids safe. It's not our kids responsibility to keep themselves safe. And so I always say, and I find this when I, I, my youngest is four now. And one of the things that we'll talk about and I'll, I'll reference secrets like, you know, randomly at random times, you know, he'll come home with, came home with like, oh, we're going to have this Hanukkah thing that's going to come home. And I'll be like, oh yeah, can you tell me about it? He's like, no, it's a, surpri- it's a surprise, right? Like he's processing what it is. I was like, right, because we don't keep secrets. But the bottom line is that when you have a kid that is being groomed by a predator, by an adult, by an abuser, by someone who's older or different from them, right? Right. The idea that a child will be able to speak up and tell someone who's in a position of power over them in some way, no, you can't do that. That's bad. We can't, A, assume that that would happen, and we can't put that onus on the shoulders of a child, right? It's our responsibility to have more than one family value rule to really be able to give our kids a toolkit for understanding what is okay and what is not. But at the same time, it's our responsibility as adults and as parents not to let them burden that or hold that burden on their own, which means that a lot of times kids. Who might be given all of the language in the world are still going to freeze if something happens to them they're still going to not be able to speak back or fight back or do anything like that because just like an adult who's in a situation where they're being robbed on the street right your adrenaline just shoots through you you freeze you don't know what to do you can't believe it's happening you can't process it i mean imagine what that's like for a child so I think having like those specific things that you talk to your kids about, you know, and you said only one, so I picked one, but I've got like a bunch of them that we could go through. Um, and, and I'm happy to. I think is it's just so important to remember that we give our kids tools, but it is not their job to keep them safe. It is our job, which means we have to push past the discomfort of what it means to have these conversations. We have to not rest on having it one time. We have to make it something that we just constantly talk about. It's a constant theme throughout our house. Just like for some of you, you know, it might be a constant theme to think about how can we help our neighbor in need, right? Or how can we help, how can we do something good for someone else? Or how can we ensure that people have really beautiful, delicious baked goods for their family event, whatever it might be. Um, this has to be a constant conversation.
0: Yeah, that. Yes. Agree. Um, if there, if there is something that is, is there something that let's say you think that every institution should be doing, um, that if that I, as a parent can go to my kid's school and say, you need to be implementing this to keep kids safer.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely do. Um, I think there needs to be an adherence to best practices across the board, which are very much that every single school should have policies and procedures in place. They should have b- boundary guidelines between faculty and staff and students, both to protect students as well as to protect faculty and staff from doing something that can be perceived as them doing something wrong, right? Boundaries are our best indicator as to whether there's a healthy relationship or a healthy um, connection between faculty and staff and students. Are there boundaries guidelines for example you know how does your school handle things like physical boundaries right how do they handle emotional or behavioral boundaries how do they handle things like you know driving in cars with students texting with students right being online with students during your hybrid learning right what are the what are the guidelines that are in place to protect everybody does your school have an an actual not only accurate, um, which adheres to laws, but a a mandated reporting policy, do they understand what that is? Do they understand the different types of abuse? And that no matter how close-knit your community is, no matter how much, you may know everyone that you have a requirement to report. In different states, it's a different standard. I'm in New York, so the standard is a reasonable cause to suspect that if you have a reasonable cause to suspect that abuse is happening, what you do and how you do it, right? And Not only that, but also policies on dealing with harassment issues between students, right? What happens when you have an accusation between a sixth grader and eighth grader, a 10th grader and an 11th grader, you know, a a third grader and a fourth grader. And that doesn't mean that it has to be something that's criminal, but what if it's something that made someone uncomfortable? What if it's something that happened in the bathroom, Um, which happens all the time? Do you have a policy or a procedure on what to do about it? How to handle it so that you're not flying by the seat of your pants, right? in reaction to something, but that you're proactive in having those policies. And do you also have, you know, an effective one that is that comports with the law, but also makes sense, sexual harassment policy. And then there are like a lot of other things in between, based on, you know, where the school is or what type of school it is. And then The biggest piece is, great, you have these policies. Are they sitting on a shelf getting dusty, or are they usable? Do they make sense? Have you done impactful, effective training on them? And for some schools, that may mean um, that they do a training internally, right? That they have someone that feels comfortable. Not only training on the policies, but being able to actually explain the why behind the policies. And for many, many places, it's about bringing someone in from the outside. Because it's not just about regurgitating what those policies are, it's about everybody being able to understand the importance and the why behind it. So it's not just about saying, oh, well, you're a mandated reporters, so you have to report when there's reasonable cause to suspect that abuse is happening. Okay, that's great. That's the standard. How do we do that in a close knit community where we're not even really sure what it is we're seeing or thinking? What if we're wrong? Right. What if we're right. Navigating through the the emotional impact of what is required by law is a really important piece of getting everybody to understand what their role is and what they have to do. And so not only do you have to understand what you have to do, you have to get past the hurdle of worrying. What if I'm wrong? And time and time again, when I go into a school and I'm training on a variety of different things like this, what really I think comes out and what my goal is, is I'm going to give you the why and I'm going to give you the how, but I want you to understand that this is a jumping off point. These conversations need to continue. And there are actually a lot of places I go to year after year after year. And I'll always say to them, like, Why don't we build on the year before? We'll do something a little different. And they're like, no, we don't want to do anything different. We want to do exactly the same thing because we need this refresher and we need this reminder. And then I think that schools, in addition to training their faculty and staff on everything from these policies, but also on myths and facts regarding, you know, abuse in general, on grooming behaviors, on understanding it, on identifying it, you know, and everything that kind of comes along with that also need to think about how they're choosing to educate their kids. Because every school is different and every school may have a different ethos or a different philosophy. You know, you could be in a secular school, you could be in a religious school, an independent school, a public school. I mean, there are a lot of variations of different types of places. But to not, but to, for example, put your kids in a hybrid learning situation or online learning situations during COVID-19, and not arm them with information on how to keep themselves safe or how to speak up when something unsafe is happening, to me, feels like it's something that schools should be doing. And I don't think it's a school's responsibility to parent a child, but I do think it's a responsibility to educate our kids in a way where they understand that they can speak up when something bad is happening. So there are schools that do student trainings on let's say consent, right, or on sexual abuse prevention on making sure that kids know how to speak up and who they can talk to and there are schools that only choose to do this training once kids are in high school right or middle school so i think it it varies but i think best practices at this point is let's educate our faculty and staff let's educate our kids let's educate our parent community and let's partner to ensure we're adhering to best practices
0: yeah, I mean, it seems I, I'm not a parent, so I can't I can't speak from experience. But to me, this hesitation that some institutions have around addressing sexual abuse makes absolutely no sense to me. Just because I don't think that if a school hires a teacher that turns out to be a predator, I'm going to assume that they did everything they could to make sure that that wouldn't happen. And as a parent, I would feel much more comfortable knowing that the second the school had that information, they took the proper action to remove that dangerous person and moved on as opposed to sweeping it under the rug and pretending like it wasn't happening and then more kids can get hurt. And that to me just seems to be common sense. Um, has that been your experience? Have, has, have the schools that you've worked with experienced any kind of, um, any kind of pushback or any kind of you know negative reactions or things to the to the trainings that you're doing?
1: I, I, you know, granted, there's always the possibility that I don't know about some negative pushback, but no, I don't think that I've ever been in a situation where after a training, whether it's with students or a parent night or faculty and staff, I can honestly say I've never been in a situation where someone has contacted us back and said, you know, that, that, that training was, that shouldn't have happened, right? Or, or now, now we're in a, we're now we're in a mess or something like that. I think what happens is actually the opposite, which is, really effective training is going to have an impact much past the date that you walked into a school and that you walked out of a school. And even just a few days ago, I got a call from, a, from, you know, from someone that I had worked with. And, and they said, you know, I remember years ago, you shared this and gave like an anecdote that i had shared during the training and said, I think about that often, because we've had many, many situations where that specific anecdote helped to guide me through understanding the significance of something. And so I think that what happens is it resonates and there's a ripple effect. Um, And I think that the more you do impactful, effective training, the more a community that is open to it or a school that is open to it um, realizes that there is work that they can do and they can partner to do that work, right? It doesn't fall on their shoulders to have to do it on their own. And there are so many times when I do a lot of trainings at camps also where, you know, a camp director will start off by saying, you know what? I think we're going to do this training internally. Let's, let's figure something out. You're going to help guide us, but, but we'll we'll do it. It's always better to have someone internally. And then let's say like a year later, it'll be ready for their staff week again. And I'll get a call and it will be like, yeah. So you know what? It didn't go so well. And I think instead, we're going to bring someone in from the outside because Sometimes bringing someone in who is actually not part of that school community or that camp community or that faith-based institution, bringing someone in who may not know the players in the same way means that there's a new voice. And sometimes it's easier to listen to a new voice when that voice is not talking at you, but really talking with you.
0: Yeah, do you have a couple more minutes for like another sure. question or so? Okay. Sure. Cuz I, I don't want to infringe on your time, but I have a whole list of things that that came up and and I want to pivot a, a tiny bit um and talk about the aftermath and that we can we can do the prevention that that we can do and that is so crucially important, but it this this does still some to still sometimes happen. And if someone is approached by a child or another adult who says, I have been victimized in whatever way, what 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 are you what, are, what what should the reaction to that be? What should if someone comes comes to you and says, you know, this has happened to me, how should you react? And if you believe that you've been a victim of a crime or just any kind of, even if it's not technically criminal, what 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 do you do in that situation?
1: So I think those are different situations actually. I think there's a difference if a kid comes to you, let's say as a parent or a teacher or something like that and says something bad happened to me, right? And they, and they, they do some sort of partial disclosure or something that sounds like a disclosure. Um, the bottom line is if it's something that's happening, if it's something that has happened in the past, no matter what, you know, that's gonna be a question as a parent of you trying to figure out in that moment Um, If this is something where the police should be called kind of right away or if this is something that your kid is talking about that happened that is nothing criminal right and sometimes that can be really hard to do and I think it's really scary for parents to think about Um, bringing in law enforcement um, to talk to their kids. But the truth is, and as somebody that is a trained forensic interviewer of kids, it's really important that if a kid makes a disclosure, if a kid makes a partial disclosure, if a kid says something that sounds like they were abused in some way, that you turn to your child and you say, wow, thank you for telling me. This must be so hard to have told me. I want you to know I'm really proud of you. I want you to know you did nothing wrong. And I want you to know that now is the time that we're gonna make sure that something like this, you know, that A, depending on what it is, something like this doesn't happen again. I want you to know that you're protected. And I want you to know that, that again, you did nothing wrong, right? And that kind of mantra of you did nothing wrong. I am so proud of you for coming forward. I know how hard this is. Now, granted, if you're a teacher, that may look a little bit different, right? It may sound a little bit different. Um, I I have to be honest in saying that if there's ever a situation of abuse, I believe law enforcement should be called right away, whether you're a mandated reporter or not. Um, there are child advocacy centers all over the country where there are people that are trained to interview kids in a way that doesn't lead them to a specific answer, but that actually talks to them so that they can assess whether something happened, what happened, if it happened, if it's possible that it happened, but we can't actually figure out if it's happened, and the reason why it's so important to bring in that professional is because kids are not linear in the way that they speak, right? There's no kid who's, I, I, don't want, I won't make a sweeping statement of there's no kid, but most kids are not going to come to you and say on Tuesday at 7.12, you know, PM at this location of this longitude and latitude, this happened to me by this person in this specific way. And let me give you a linear assessment of that. Right? that doesn't happen um, for, for the most part. I have never had something like that happen to me. Um, and so because of that, it becomes incredibly important to not be scared of law enforcement, but to realize they actually do know what they're doing. Now, That doesn't mean that there isn't someone out there who's listening who couldn't have had a really bad um, experience at a child advocacy center or with law enforcement. Obviously, we're all in different states and there are different experiences that people had. And I do not want to, I don't want to undermine anyone's experience. Um, But I don't believe that abuse is something that should be handled internally. And I don't believe that it's something that a clergy member or that a religious institution should be handling, um, mostly because they don't know how to do it, and that's not the right way to approach this. And from a macro level, if someone's abusing a child, then chances are they've abused another child or they'll abuse again, Um, and it is incredibly important that that be reported, period. Um, I think your other question was more what if, you know, somebody comes to you, let's say like a friend or a, a spouse or someone and, and discloses to you that in the past something happened to them, right? And and they're an adult. They can choose whether to go to law enforcement or not, right? No one can force an adult to speak to a police officer or walk into to a precinct. Um, I think it's really important to be there for that person and to kind of mirror the same type of response. You know, I am so sorry that this happened to you. You know, I don't want—I don't even want to ask how can I help because I know that probably the best thing I can do is just listen and let you know that I believe you. And I think that taking it back to one of the first things that we talked about. Um, People have a really hard time believing people when it comes to sexual assaults and sexual abuse. They don't want to believe it and they look to blame the victim first. And if anybody ever approaches you and shares with you something that happened to them, the most impactful and important thing that you can do is make it clear that you believe them and be there in the way that they need you to be there. And for some people, it may be that they need someone to walk into a precinct with them for other people, it may mean for other adults, it may mean that they just need you to listen and tell them that it's not their fault. But the worst thing you could do is turn to them and say, no way. No way. Or did it really happen that way? Come on, think about it. Really? I know that person. No way. That did not happen. Um, that The validation that you give by just listening and being there and telling someone you believe them is a very powerful thing.
0: Yeah, I I can totally understand how that would be transformative. This has been a a mind-opening conversation. Um, and I hope that, any, you know, if there's anyone here who is listening who unfortunately has any experience with anything here, I do hope that you reach out and get the help that that you need and that you deserve and um, and to talk to law enforcement when necessary. If somebody wants to uh, learn more about you, Rahul, where can they go?
1: Sure. So um, I have a website, uh, the Bayer Group, at the, dot com. I'm also on LinkedIn under Rachel Bayer, spell my name without a C. So R-A-H-E-L-B-A-Y-A-R. I'm on Instagram as well, rachel.bayer. Um, and I'm always happy to connect.
0: That sounds fantastic. The last thing that I want to ask you is what I ask everyone who comes on the show, and that is to you, Rachel Bayer, what does it mean to make an impact?
1: Um, to make an impact, it means to be able to, for me, for me, it means to use your voice to make a difference. And that doesn't mean that that voice has to be loud. It doesn't mean it has to be soft. It doesn't mean that it has to sound just like mine, but to really have an impact, it means you have to speak up. And because that means so many different things to so many different people at so many different times, if we all just did that, think about the impact it would have.
0: I could not agree more. Thank you so much for coming on today, Rachel. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Rachel, her links are in the show notes. There you'll also find links to the coziest scarf and the most comfortable mask. Access all of that by swiping up on the cover art or going to impactfashionnyc.com. If you'd like to apply to advertise on the Be Impactful podcast, please send me an email to rifki at impactfashionnyc.com. To hear more episodes, be sure to subscribe. If you enjoyed this episode, and want to help more people hear it, leave a review, or a quick rating. They make my day. The episode art was designed by Michelle Moses. Original music composed by Nissan Fetman. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Rifki Squitz. Catch me on Instagram and Facebook at impact.fashion.myc. As always, here's to making an impact together.